We continue the conversation now and we'll be looking at the latest report by the Human Sciences Research Council. This time they've looked into the Social Relief of Distress Grant and they are really trying to understand what the experience of South Africans has been in applying and accessing that grant and the kind of impact or difference that it, had, that it has made in their lives. Uh, Dr. Candice Grunewald is Chief Research Specialist in the Human and Social Capabilities Division at the HSRC. Dr. Grunewald, good morning to you. Good morning and thanks for having me. Abigail Peters is the paralegal field wor- worker for uh, the Black Sash. Abigail, good morning to you as well. Uh, good morning to you and good morning to the listeners. Dr. Grunewald, let's just begin perhaps with setting the context for uh, this research and, and how it was conducted by the HSRC. Sure, thanks so much. Um, so the research was conducted in partnership with Black Sash. Um, Black Sash was particularly interested in understanding, as you um, indicated before, what people's experiences are and kind of the lived realities um, during the pandemic and also the experiences of applying for this particular grant. Um, and so the study was conducted on behalf of Black Sash as part of a larger initiative um, to understand the kind of challenges that people face in accessing the grant um, and also the impact the grant has made in their lives. So to conduct this work, we interviewed um, people between the ages of 18 and, and 59 um, to understand just, just what the experiences have been um, including females and males, um, and they were all kind of scattered across different places in South Africa. I think an important point for us to kind of really center the work that has yeah. been done and, 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 and the role of assessing the impact of this uh, grant would be to to look at the the lived realities of, of mm-hmm. people during the pandemic because I, I find it interesting that, that the study spent... Um, a lot of time looking at just the yeah. conditions that people were finding themselves in. And, and perhaps if we can just begin there, uh, uh, Candice? Sure, definitely. I think the lived reality during the pandemic um, was very, very difficult for people. I mean, it's still ongoing right now, and we know and we expect it to be long-term in terms of the impact of this pandemic. Um, I think there's no one, including everybody listening right now, that cannot agree that it has been a tough time for people. Um, And when we talk about the most vulnerable groups of our population, the people that are hit by poverty the hardest, um, it was extremely difficult. So if we think about the lived realities, we know that um, one of the primary issues that have emerged is issues around joblessness and loss of income, um, unemployment. We've seen a spike um, in unemployment during the pandemic. Um, In our own study, we've seen um, you know, just a, a large increase in the number of people that were actually unemployed. If we look at before the pandemic um, and, and compare that with during the pandemic, there was definitely a spike in the, in the amount of people that were unemployed. And this is across the board, different studies showing that. Um, and then that has a ripple effect on everything else if you think about it. So you, if you don't have an income, you are not able to secure um, food, even good quality food. You're not able to do so many other things um, and so the lived realities is quite devastating. Um, it continues to be devastating. And I think that was part of the primary um, reason for the study is to, is to allow people to also voice um, and tell about their the stories 
um, and the experience of during this time, because I think a lot of us have been suffering in silence as well. Um, and, 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 you know, research can often be a space for us to capture those experiences, but also allow people to, to voice their concerns and the challenges that they face. Mm. So, yeah, the pandemic has been really, really devastating um, and challenging for people to get through. Abigail, when we look at what the report has found, it's it's not just joblessness that was um, such a big issue during the pandemic, but we also have people who are struggling to access health care and most yeah. importantly, who are struggling to access food. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's it's really saddening to, to see that kind of the basic rights and the basic needs that people um, need to access just to survive are just so stringent and so difficult mm-hmm. to access. And I think for a lot of people, just being able to have some kind of form of income, some kind of form of of hope for them. And I think Candice will speak to how um, a lot of the, the, the people who interviewed and and we spoke to the differences that it made to have something come into the household. Mm-hmm. Very grateful for being able to do something with that money, even though it is so little. And so I think the impact that we will see and we continue to see, we will see for many years to, to come still. Um, and that is why it's, it's so important to, to look towards um, a change of of being able to see a form of basic income that will not only look at um, being able to support um, those most vulnerable um, financially, but also looking at how it affects everything else around them. Mm-hmm. When when I look at um, this this research, there's a part where you're talking about the participants of of, of the research and pre-pandemic, this is pre-COVID-19 pandemic, five participants were unemployed, whereas during this pandemic, this number more than doubled. You had 12 participants that now moved to being unemployed. Tell us a little bit more about those those figures and what they actually represent. Um, Perhaps, Candice, you want to take this one? Sure. Um, So our study was was small in numbers. but you know, it really represents what's been happening in the in the larger scheme of things, supported by national data sets. Um, so when we asked us, we basically asked participants, you know, about the employment status before the pandemic, um, and like you said, five people said that they were unemployed. But when we asked them about, you know, the the employment status during the pandemic, twelve people said that they were unemployed. So what does this mean? It means that you know. Clearly, unemployment rates have have increased, um, and it, like I said, it, it relates to what what the larger data sets are telling us. Um, but it's also that majority of the people we spoke to were in the informal sector, which means that you know people, for example, who were who were selling food, people who were um, um, working in hair salons, you know, different kind of spaces. People weren't able to actually um, they weren't able to actually um, still continue with the work that they were doing. So it was quite a difficult time for people um, during the pandemic. And again, losing your job is, is, is losing an income. It's losing, it's losing access to so many different things, especially food. And I wanted to also just comment on your, 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 your issue around food insecurity during the pandemic. 
One of the key things that we also found in the study is we've, we've seen an increase in unemployment, right? We've also seen people during the pandemic who struggled because of the pandemic to be able to secure jobs. Uh, people were, were struggling to, to, you know, put their CVs out there and all of that because businesses were closing down and because of the restrictions around um, um, social, social interaction and so forth. But... Ten of our people actually indicated that they had applied for food passes, but only two people said that they were able to access it. Now, this was extremely problematic because if 12 people were unemployed um, and, you know, 10 people were able to, um, were applying for the food passes, but only two were able to actually secure that, it means that a lot of people were not able to get any source of support um, in terms of food security. Um, and the problems there was that people just didn't know how to actually access these um, food parcels. They didn't know who to go to, who to speak to. There was limited understanding about, you know, am I even eligible? And there was some crazy, not crazy, but like um, um, different kind of conspiracy theories going around thinking that the, the access to food parcels is a scam um, or there's a link going around where you can click on something um, and then, you know, you're, 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 there's a cost associated with this. So I think there was a lot of stuff happening that were also hindering people's abilities to actually get access to some kind of support um, and placing a lot of the responsibility of the, on the participants and on South Africans to actually get access to support mm. um, rather than support just being available for them. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot needed to, to get people um get information out there to allow people to actually access the different support that is and should be available to them. I want us to continue talking about this this issue of food security because, again, yeah. you know, we had a lot of aid organizations that were um, highlighting the plight of what they were seeing in communities. But there seems to me that this message, there, there's a way in which it doesn't filter through, at least not yeah. in the kind of responses that we see um, that are afforded yeah. to, to, to communities, especially on a government level. But we'll continue the conversation mm-hmm. in a moment. Uh, Dr. Candace Grunewald uh, is with the mm-hmm. HSRC and Abigail Peters is with the Black Sash. We're talking about... Um, this relief of distress grant that was issued and the research that has been done into the impact of this grant. For now, it's 10.30. And Musa has your latest news headlines. The Talking Point with Kathy Motasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. I'll be taking your calls on 011-714-2006 as as we continue to look at the research that has been done into the Social Relief of Distress Grant and the impact that it has had on the um, lives of the recipients. But most importantly, what are some of the challenges that have been experienced when it comes to applying to actually get this grant and um, the access to this grant. So um, you can also send your WhatsApp voice notes on 0614-104-107. I want to come to you, Abigail, and just stay on this issue of of food security because I I can recall a time under the pandemic, we were talking with uh, Dr. Imtia Suleiman, And he was telling us about communities, uh, you know, in the Eastern Cape, rural communities in the Eastern Cape, where people had, you know, started to resorting to things like eating cats and and stuff Mm -hmm. just to be able to survive. 
Now, it mm-hmm. sounds so extraordinary that I, I think it's one of those stories that people hear, but don't quite mm-hmm. believe the, the extent to which it could be true. Uh, because mm-hmm. the kind of hunger that, that people have been exposed to is not necessarily something that we are seeing on the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So you don't see it on TV. You don't really see it in newspapers. Mm-hmm. So it, it's hard to imagine um, what hunger levels uh, uh, pe- people people were suffering from. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some continue to, to, to suffer from. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, Kathy, it's, uh, it's it's quite an incredible uh, situation currently. And um, uh, recently, the Black Sash has also done um, research around child nutrition. And um, I think even through the, that, those findings, um, there were just incredible stories of of mothers and their sacrifice um, to be able to feed their children, let alone themselves. And that sacrifice often meant they're not eating so that they can give the very little that they have to their children. And the very little that they had had very small and minimal nutritional value for just healthy children to grow. And of course, we know that has an impact not only on the children's development, but their health and and just a string of issues. Um, And so we are faced with that a lot more so now um, because of the pandemic and what mm-hmm. it has caused. And so um, we have a lot more um, cases of like of deep hunger where we have uh, sad stories of, of, of children coming to their mothers. I think one of the points that I raised and is one of, 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 of the caregivers that I interviewed and she was telling me about her uh, her son coming to her and asking her, um, Mom, is there, is there anything to eat, even just a piece of bread? Um, and then just, you know, feeling heartbroken that she couldn't say to her son that there is nothing um, because she has to make a way for there to be something. And so it has had such a negative impact um, and especially on women and children and um, the access that they have to food. And as you say, then having to look for alternatives um, that often seem gruesome. Um, but what is left for, for people to do? And this is where government should step in. And this is where uh, the Black Sessions call for basic income support and the basic income grant is so important that there can be a form of income and for people to not only support themselves, um, but also support uh, their households and their children. And so it's very hard to hear these stories and uh, they just keep continuing um, because currently uh, there is no concrete and permanent solution, which is something that we are calling for. Yeah. Let, let's talk about, um, you know, the, the, the access to the food puzzles, because one would think that yeah. um, everybody who raises their hand up and say, I need um, assistance, I need support in the form of a food parcel would be able to get that. Was there an issue with the criteria 
um, or, or did it come down to some of the challenges that were also reported on that at a local level, the distribution of these food parcels uh, seem to have been contaminated by uh, sometimes the local politics of, of an area? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. um, Kathy, I think you, you're hitting the, the nail on the head there in terms of our research, at least. So when we asked the participants around the, the issues that they were, they were facing and why they weren't able to access the food parcels, it was in relation to, you know, no one could tell me what I needed to do. And some of our participants would go and reach out to the local leaders and ask them, um, but they were still told, you know, that, um, for example, if I reflect on one of the participants, she said, you know, I went to ask my local leader, I'm a, I'm a young um, woman, I'm part of the youth category, and I wanted to know if I could get access to the food parcel for me in my household. Um, I couldn't because I was told that the food parcels were for orphans only, and they don't have any food parcel for people in my age group, and so I just left it at that point in time. And so there are other people also speaking about, you know, that that I keep requesting, I keep asking, I keep going to the people um, that I am told I need to reach out to, but um, it just never came. Um, and some of our other studies mm-hmm. and, and um, that I've been involved in, but also just other studies um, in South Africa, has also shown that, you know, people um, are waiting for food parcels and it's just not, mm-hmm. it's just not coming through. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that the that communication issue. Um, that that needs to be addressed around where do people go and who are, and how do they actually go about applying for these food parcels and people being held mm. accountable for distributing the food parcels to the homes where they need to be going to. Mm. Mm. Let's get into the actual grant itself uh, then, Candice, and, and yeah. you know what you found people had to say about it. Uh, and I think in the main you had a lot of gratitude um, for yes. this grant and the fact that it was it was making a, a difference, and I think uh, you know the department's own research has found that um, this this grant was very well received and very much needed. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean the grant is well received because the grant is well needed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people were very appreciative that they could that they could get some money in to support them. Um, People were very appreciative that they were, and they felt that they were better off than other people who were not able to access the grant and people who did not have any kind of income. But at the same time, um, in 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 light of kind of the theme around uh, the broader work that Black Sash has been doing, you know, the 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 grant was a lifeline, but it was not enough to cover everything that the participants mm-hmm. needed to cover. So if we think about it, and I've been thinking about this a lot, what Kathy, and I'm asking you now, <laughs> what would you do with 350 rand? What would you be able to buy? How would you be able to support yourself? How would you be able to support your family? Um, it is an income and it is appreciated. But people, for example, I think of one of our participants saying, you know, it makes a difference in my life and I'm able to buy the basics, but I can't buy soap, I can't buy washing powder, mm. um, I can't do this, I can't do that. And I mean, soap and washing powder mm. is part of the basics of our lives. Um, and so, yes, we are appreciating the fact that there's, there's some funding coming in for our participants, but, you know, they are saying it is really not enough to sustain us in the long mm. run. Um, mm. and, and if we think about, you know, it's 350 rand, but everything else that goes, around that, and I'm just coming back to your, your conversation around food insecurity, um, almost half of our participants indicated that they needed to skip a meal 
during the pandemic um, and um, that they needed to actually borrow money in order to buy food, including from loan sharks. So if we think about the fact that that there's borrowing happening, there's skipping of meals happening, it sets people back already. So if you borrow Mm -hmm. money um, to actually buy something and there's an interest on that, that 350 rand shrinks immediately. So by the mm-hmm. time you get that money, you're already in a deficit to what you started off with. Um, so, you know, the cycle of poverty is something that we need to consider in making decisions around um, giving people access to this money. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think your listeners would all agree um, that, that you know, 350 is really not, it's not, it's not enough to cover the basics, um, to cover the basics. And, 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 and as if that, that situation is not enough, you then have um, some officials uh, and, and, you know, there's no clarity of how far up this corruption goes, right? But that when people are standing in the queues, then you have people that are yeah. in those queues saying that they're holding positions. And mm-hmm. if you want to move further up in the queue, you have to take out an amount of money in order for yeah. you to be able to, uh, you know, get to a point where you can get your mm. money. So so if you're yeah. spending um, 10 rand, 20 rand, 50 rand to pay That's off somebody rand. in the queue so that you can get yeah. the money that you need, it's taking away from the little that we have. And, and I'm surprised by the fact that there's been no clear way, um, especially for the, some of the entities on the ground, like the South African Post Office, to, to deal with that corruption that, that is taking place. Because you can imagine 50 rand from 50 people may not seem like it's that much money, but um, ultimately becomes a, a numbers game. And we, once you scale it up, you can imagine how many people were making a killing every single month due to yes. the, 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 the recipients who were in the queues. Yes, and the recipients that have been waiting for so long. I mean, if you think mm. about it, if you're going in, to go and collect your grant. Um, you've spent travel money to get there, right? Mm-hmm. So your 350 is already shrunk. So now you're standing in the line and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're seeing other people just coming in ahead of you, going and paying their monies and coming out. You also feel a pressure that that's what you need to do to get your money. Because many mm-hmm. people also spoke about standing in this line um, and waiting and sometimes not even getting a you know, getting anything out because systems are offline or because, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's not enough money being paid out. So the desperation grows for people. And then, you, then mm-hmm. there are people that take advantage of that desperation and then say, mm-hmm. okay, if you pay me X amount of money, I will push you up in the queue and I will get you in. Um, and mm-hmm. what does that do? It just perpetuates the cycle of violence, of, of um Poverty for people, because you are, at the end of the day, you are always at a deficit um, from a 350 rand. Um, that is already not enough to cover what you need to, what you need to um, in your life. So it is really problematic. And, and um, yeah, it's something that came up in our study. It wasn't the, 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 the strongest theme. I just want to say that, you know, it's not like everybody spoke about it. But, um, you know, people definitely spoke about the fact that, um, there's a security guard at my post office and if you give them 50 rand, mm. you can go inside and get your money mm. and you can leave. 
um, this is a big mm. problem. Yeah. Uh, I want to play some of the voice notes that um, have come through sure. on, on this issue for, for this morning. We're still in conversation mm-hmm. with right. Abigail Peters, who is with the Black Sash, and uh, Dr. Candice Grunewald, who is with the HSRC. Good Katie, and your lovely guest there. Yes, SRD and food parcels were very much needed by who? So let me tell you the stark truth. Corruption is so rife. It is rearing its ugly head from the top management downward. Even the people, the social workers who are working on the ground, do not give this with passers to the deserving people. The vulnerable go to bed on empty stomach. They do give it to their friends. They do sell, some even sell this food parcel to the of 800 to 100 rand. So let me just tell you that corruption and fraud at SASA. Let me see a social development and SASA is an agency that first under SASA. Corruption is so rife there, but it does not start at the bottom. It starts at the top. So those who deserve food passes don't get them. The vulnerable, they don't get them. The poorest of the poor who deserve them don't get them. These are well received by the people who don't deserve Some of them, of them are the SASA officials, the families to the SASA officials, public servants who do receive this SRD grant. And government is doing nothing. They've not yet been brought to book. They've not yet been brought to book, those frosters at SASA. Good evening, I'm Anonymous from Brantfish. Morning, Kathy. It's Anonymous in KZN. My problem with SRD, I was earning UIF and my last payment on UIF was in February the 4th. Then I've registered for SRT in March. March was pending, April I was pending, now it's May. Then when I'm checking now in March, the March registration, the payment that was supposed to be paid, it's now said declined, UIF registered. I'm appealing, I'm late to appeal. The system didn't allow me to appeal in time. Now they just responded late. When I didn't have a job, they rejected my 350 grand application saying that I have income that I'm getting from somewhere. When I got a job, four months into my job, they they approved my 350 grand application. That time I was already getting salary. So they said, come to the post office, get your 350. It's waiting for you in the post office. What is it doing in the post office when the application required me to give banking details? Hmm? They are doing corruption in the Department of Social Affairs because who's now taking that money? They approved me while I was then, now I had gotten a job. Then they approved me after I got a job when they initially rejected me first. Now they are eating that money. They are chowing that money. I don't know who's chowing that money. I don't know who's chowing that money because I don't need it now. But they approved me after I got a job. Why? Crooks. Morning, Jethi. This is Jethi. I applied for two of my neighbors who are not working. I put their details and select the post office where they can go and collect their uh, 350. But the problem is when they go to the the post office, they, are, they have been told that they do not appear on the system. But when you enter their ID number on the uh, SASA website, 
it says crowd is active the ones that uh, i helped and that uh, i have uh, successfully received their grants are the ones that are receiving child support grant but those ones that are not on the uh that that system so I'm, I'm not sure what what is the problem can someone from sas explain that Abigail, let me come to you, uh, you know, after listening to those voice notes and hearing the different challenges that people have mm -hmm. been facing, mm -hmm. I wonder how much of what our listeners have said this morning um, also parallels with what the, the research has found. Well, I think it's, it's also like really true for, for many people who have the same issues. Now, I'll look at the, the SRD um, application. Um, it's been I kind of filled and riddled with, with issues and another gentleman spoke about um UIF that he stopped receiving and still not being able to access the grant of being rejected. And um it's one of the issues that also we found that the databases that uh, is used for cross checking whether you can mm -hmm. um qualify is outdated. And often people are then wrongly rejected because databases have not been updated. And so besides that, your appeals processes also then take so long um, and is not able to go through as quickly and to be addressed as quickly. And so now you wait even longer to be able to, to try to overturn the rejections that you have received. And... It's really difficult because that takes resources and effort and airtime and and having access to to the internet to be able to do that and putting that also that expectation on those who already have very little to be able to go through um, these appeals processes, which is very difficult um, for anyone who is just using a, a a normal phone or just has a smartphone even that doesn't always have access to data because data is also expensive. So mm -hmm. it's it's just kind of the, the system is, is is kind of in a way making it even more difficult for people to then access um, this grant that is so so strongly needed and, and, and so desperately needed. And you can see that this is that the system is exclusively digital and uh, to access um, this grant and it, only communication is, is, is through English. So that's also uh, something that's, that's difficult. And, and if someone is, is, is rejected, it's, it's often more than not, not, they would rather than say, well, okay, I was rejected and, and kind of just move on with their life and not try to. But someone who, as a gentleman mentioned, was, like, actually, no, I want to do something about this. Um, some people don't have that uh, also motivation, so they'd rather not continue with that process. And then they have no other kind of outlet to be able to try to find an income. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, it's very difficult then to go through that process. So the system and the process is already um, against the poor to be able to, to access the grant that they really need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about the lessons that, that you think can be learned from 
um, the the number of cycles that have been run on these uh, on the social relief of distress grant because I think the one thing it seems everybody agrees on is this is an important grant it is a necessary grant it makes a difference mm-hmm. in people's lives and none of that seems to be uh, contested so when you talk then about the mm-hmm. future of the impact of this grant. Candice, based on this research, what do you think are some of the the, the lessons um, that the department would need to take in order to make it even more effective? Well, I think, I mean, the kind of work that I do is always always comes from a participatory perspective um, in terms of listening to the kind of narratives that we heard today, um, taking the research that we've done really seriously and recognizing that when, especially larger studies, and, and we, you know, <laughs> I think a lot of people put a lot of uh, confidence into numbers. Um, and I think lots of the time when we do that, um, that is great, but it also we need to remember that these numbers represent people and people's lives. Um, and I think for me, coming from that participatory perspective, is important to understand where and how the decisions need to be made. So listening to these voices is extremely important. But I think what we've learned is that there really is a large responsibility placed on people to access the grant, um, on people to understand why was I not eligible, on people to make these different calls um, around UIF. I need to call this person to understand why am I still on, and then I need to call that person. So there's a large burden placed um, on applicants who are already um, not able to, to to do what they need to do because they do not have the funds to be able to do that. So I think that, you, that from my perspective, um, there has to be some consultation. Um, and I think Blackfash has been um, really great at advocating around these issues. And I'm sure Abigail will speak about that, um, the kind of work that they've done. Um, but I think it is this consultation and listening to the fact that people are saying, we we need some more information around this eligibility criteria. We need also the system to be updated in order for us to apply. We cannot be waiting months. I mean, we have people speaking about going back and forth for months to understand why they haven't, you know, why they are not on the system. When they're not receiving UIF, they're not receiving any other form of income. Um, and what that means is that they are now waiting for months, and not just waiting, they are now getting back into debt, having to lend money, having to skip meals, um, having to offer up so many things that are basic services for them um, because they are now being kicked out of something that they should not um, be ineligible for. So I think the consultations that I'm sure Black Sash will probably be doing going mm-hmm. forward is going to be extremely valuable um, in moving some of these conversations forward at the, at the more macro um, level. I want to read this message here from uh, Zaki Matebula, and I think it really paints a picture of of way mm. of way people are, especially with this uh, three hundred and and fifty rand. He says, uh, "Bread is eighteen rand. Twelve point five kilogram millimeal is a hundred and ten rand. Ten kilograms of rice is a hundred and fifty rand, and five kilograms of of chicken meat is two hundred rand." washing powder and others. How will that fit into this 350 rand? You can't buy something that you can eat for the week. It's painful. 
but we it's have really. to accept as um, we can't say anything. And and again, you look at what um, the examples he's given is that many people who receive this grant are not actually even buying bread. They're buying flour and, and, mm. and sunflower oil. And, and, you know, they've been trying to bake goods and, and make that uh, make it go as far as they can. Mm. But with the cost of oil yeah. being where it is now, that mm. is, is also not helping. Uh, Abigail, b- before we conclude this conversation, I want you to tell me just about um, the platform that US Black Sash have, have started mm-hmm. that allows people to actually come on and, um, and, 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 and raise some of the challenges that, that they've been experiencing and how they are assisted. Um, well, yes, the Black Sash does have uh, a helpline um, that people can access um, to if they have uh, some issues and questions, uh, particularly uh, with the grant that they, they can't seem to solve or, or they don't have any answers to. And they can contact um, our helpline for, for advice on this um, on 072-663-37. 39, or they can contact 063-610-1865. They can send a please call me to this number as well, and we will contact them back. Or if they have access to WhatsApp, they can send a WhatsApp message, and they can come into contact with our um, paralegals on the helpline to assist them. And I think just what's going forward for the Black Search is, and as, we, as we're taking on um, the just this campaign on basic income support, really pushing for an increase and to be able to be received and for this grant to at least be at the the food poverty line, um, which is currently at 624, and for there to be some form of permanent income for those between the ages of 18 and 59 who are just not covered. They have no income Mm -hmm. and uh, no source um, outside uh, the general grants that, that people are able to access. So this is really super important to us, and this is what we're pushing for in our conversations going forward. And um, we continue to advocate, and we're continuing to have the research to support what we are saying, so that we can continue to just take this forward and, and, and possibly also just be able to see this through political world being reality. All right. Mm-hmm. Let me thank you both for coming on to the show. Abigail Peters is with the Black Session, Dr. Candice Grunewald with, with the Human Sciences Research Council. So that number, again, um, if you weren't able to get it, this is the number from the Black Sash where they assist you. You heard Abigail saying that you can either SMS or WhatsApp these two numbers. It's 72 so that's 72 663 The alternative number, 063-610-1865. So I'll say it again, 063-610-1865. Those are the numbers that you can dial if you're still struggling with accessing that uh, grant and they'll be able uh, to assist you with your particular case.